0: And Welcome back to new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. I'm Samantha Lom, one of the hosts of the channel. Today We're going to be talking to Olga Velikanova about her new book mass political culture under Stalinism popular discussion of the Soviet Constitution of 1936. Welcome Olga. Thank you for being on our program. Hi Samantha.
1: I'm very glad to discuss my book with you the expert in the topic, who recently authored the book on the popular discussion of the Constitution, so I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, thank you for being here. This is, as you mentioned, a topic very near and dear to my heart. So why don't we get started? Olga, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, I'm an associate professor uh, of history at the University of North Texas it's not far from Dallas, our university, and uh, my field of expertise is actually the popular opinion of the Soviet people. Um, yeah, probably to the major information we need.
0: So what got you interested in the topic of the 1936 constitutional discussion?
1: Yeah, I have been studying the popular opinion of the Soviet people for about 30 years, and I have published five books on uh, this topic, among them Popular Perceptions of Soviet Politics in the 1920s. And when I worked in the archives and focused on the 1930s, I found that the comments received in the discussion in 1936 were somehow overlooked by historians. Probably historians believed that these comments were so much orchestrated by repressive and propagandistic regime that these sources are not uh, reliable as uh, as a source. What I found in the archives is a wide range of opinions. The liberal freedoms announced in the constitution and political mobilization campaign around the Constitution provoked citizens to articulate, to express their attitudes to the civil right, to civil rights, pluralism, political participation, individualism, and, I realized that these sources give me excellent opportunity to discuss political culture of the Soviet Union, mass political culture in the Soviet Union, and um, it was the stimulus to start this study.
0: So let's talk a little bit about these sources. I know at least for Western historians, one of the reasons we didn't use them is that up until the 90s, they weren't available. We were not able to get into the archives. And I know that since I looked at the constitutional material myself, Getty, Arch Getty had been in there before me. So at least a couple of us had looked at it. But what specific sources did you use? I mainly rely on stuff from the Kirov region and stuff from the Central Committee and the Constitutional Drafting Committee. But if I remember, you used several other different sources, correct?
1: Yes, I actually was uh, very lucky to um, start working with a new complex of documents at the very, very beginning, actually during the coup, uh, uh, anti-Gorbachev coup in 1991. At that moment, I was working in the archives, and uh, I was searching for the documents characterizing popular opinion in the Soviet Union. They were secret, they were classified. And unexpectedly, after the coup, just in a week after the coup in August 1991, uh, these documents were released and they came into my hands. And from that moment, I was very passionate about the new archival documents that I discovered. And the major part of this uh, new uh, documentation were... The regular reports of the um, security police at that time, the OGPU or NKVP, uh in the Soviet Union, about popular moves, about uh, popular reactions to the policies of the Bolsheviks, of uh, Stalin's government, and later too. So it is one of the uh, sources that provoked my interest in um, the field of popular opinions, And when I uh, started the popular reactions to the Constitution, I uh, definitely used these OGPU reviews or svotki, uh, but major government... Complex of the documents was the CIC uh, Commission on the Constitution, so Central Executive Committee of the Soviets. Translation of this organization. So it uh, this commission monitored the uh, mobilization campaign around the Constitution and acquired regular reporting from the locals about the meetings, about the comments, about the questions on the Constitution. So, and collected, this commission collected materials from official gatherings, also letters to the newspapers, anonymous letters to the authorities, formal proposals at the factories, plants, universities, and so on. So it was the second source um, for my work, and then I very uh, meticulously started the internal communication of the leaders because I wanted to know the goals of the campaign of this reform uh, and uh, not only uh, formal or official communication at the central. Uh, community plenums, but also um, personal correspondence of Stalin, uh, Molotov, uh, and other major leaders.
0: Um, private so letters. let's mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit, because um, I'm sure our listeners are going to be wondering why the Stalinist government decided to in- initiate this constitutional reform. What did you find in the personal correspondence of these leaders that Told you about this?
1: Yeah. So actually, it is very good uh, and large question. Large question. Um, the initiative to reform the constitution was a part of a larger discourse. What we see in the period from 1933-36 is are uh, some tendencies in the policies which historians call moderate policies in political, economic, judicial, and ideological developments. And uh, I avoid calling these tendencies as reforms or something like that. These tendencies do not indicate a planned and conscious, coherent policy, nor, of course, any intentional democratic reform. Some scholars use this term, democratic reform. I'm not. Um, These tendencies show, first of all, an adjustment, a reactive policies after extraordinary excesses during the collectivization. For example, discharge of our overcrowded prisons. And on the second level, These moderate policies were on the level of meta-discourse. What I mean here, a relaxation motivated by the expectation of the advent of socialism. And here I need to give more explanation. Actually, I argue that Stalin, a dogmatic Marxist, believed that Bolsheviks' changes in the economy Nationalization of industry, collectivization of agriculture would automatically produce socialism and re-educate, transform society. And Stalin texts show that he expected that socialist economic measures uh, plus education, plus propaganda and purges, would turn citizens, especially young generation, into Soviet new men and women. Consequently, he turned away from the repressions in the countryside, abolished disfranchisement of the former people, and introduced liberal freedoms and universal secret elections in the constitution of the nine of nineteen thirty-six. So constitution crowned these moderat- moderating policies reflecting Stalin's expectations of the advent of socialism. So this was the major background behind the initiation of constitutional reform.
0: When you say liberal um liberal rights could you tell our readers what specifically you mean by that?
1: So the uh, part of the Constitution was, um, the chap- was the chapter or chapters about granting to the Soviet citizens the rights of uh, assembly. Um, right of creating parties was not clearly articulated in the Constitution but it was the chapter about freedom of association, freedom of press, speech, but the most important uh, innovation in the Constitution was universal suffrage. And this part of the Constitution produced heated debate in
0: the population. So my next question is, do you think the regime was sincere about these, yeah, I know you don't like the word democratic, but these more liberal reforms that they had made in the constitution? Because I know scholars like Robert Tucker argue that it was simply done for show to help raise the USSR's standing in the international community. What do you think?
1: Yes. Still now, it is the dominating uh, view of the reasons of this constitution that from the very beginning, the constitution was a sham. It was a trick, directed probably to the international community to show the success and democratic face of the regime. Um, However, I believe the major background is that stalinists sincerely believed in advent of socialism and hoped that society would act as a new soviet man in these terms yes stalinists sincerely believed in common socialism and they granted these freedoms to the new soviet people but it it was a disappointment as a result, right so my point that constitution became a sham, but it was not the sham at the very beginning.
0: I would agree with you there. I mean I find a lot of evidence to prove that Stalin actually pushed forward with for example the um enfranchisement of a larger group of people when other people in the Central Committee raised a lot of concerns and certainly from the regional bosses you had a lot of concerns about re-enfranchising these former class enemies and Stalin was really serious about doing it until it seemed like it was politically untenable Um, I did notice interestingly in your book that you don't talk about the Constitution itself, you don't talk about the text of the Constitution or look at how it's different from 1919 to 1924, and I thought that that was interesting. Why did you choose to not look at the draft Constitution? Um, So, I actually
1: analyzed uh, the Constitution of 1936, but I didn't do a comparison with the previous institutions. It is because of the goal of my study. The goal was the uh, political culture, the study of political culture of the Soviet Union. Um, And uh, here, the text analysis of the Constitution and uh, the comparison with the previous gives a little. And uh, in addition, Soviet historians had already done these analysis earlier, so I didn't want to repeat this. Okay.
0: Although I have to say my finding was nobody else, at least until I got a hold of the fundi, had been into the actual drafts of the constitution themselves. There was no other name in the um, la. Which was interesting. Yeah, but I I
1: know what you mean, but uh, I have seen this analysis, not once, in the works of Soviet historians from the 50s, from the 60s, from the 70s. They used these materials. But didn't
0: Maybe they changed out the folders or something. Yeah, something, yeah. Okay, so why did the Soviet state open up the draft constitution for discussion? They had not done that in 1918 or in 1924. What was different about 1936, and why did they do this?
1: Uh, Yes, government constantly monitored society through surveillance and political mobilizations. Discussion of the constitution was exactly such campaign ways mobilizational, integrational, educational, monitoring and legitimization functions. We can say the goal was to check if society is sufficiently sovietized. And uh, Soviet government received systematically the documentation about conditions in society from different bodies, as I said, from OGPU and KVD and uh, trade unions, party organizations and so on and so on, but um, government never limited itself with one source and wanted the broad picture of the condition of in society. So uh, that's why government insisted that local authorities discussing organizing the meetings uh, in the localities would send the reports to the CIC commission. And uh, these recorded comments Received by the government from different bodies, I said not only from Tsip, not only from OGPU, not only from the party organizations, showed that society was not harmonious as Stalin anticipated, but very much fragmented. We can even see the they could see and we can see the. Uh, conditions of a civil war mentality too many people in these comments disagreed with Stalin's theses about consolation of classes they warned the government about resilient and numerous enemies about priests colluding to be nominating to the Soviets in elections Reports brought to government numerous anti-Soviet, anti-Colcos, comments. Many argued that it's too dangerous to give the voting rights and other liberties to former Kulaks and priests. If if you allow me, I can quote just two uh, comments. Um, For example, I quote, former merchants, kulaks, and other exploiters have not yet transformed themselves and forgotten their former wealth. During elections, they can propagate their views and attract unstable, hesitant citizens. Former people should be restricted in their rights. And and another quotation, the Red Army soldier, Kalganov, rejected the franchise of priests because... In the future war they may betray the socialist fatherland uh, actually there were numerous fears articulated in the comments that enemies could use new liberties and suffrage um, to obstruct the construction of socialism so and you can imagine that such suspicious person as Stalin paid special attention to such warnings.
0: Yeah, I noticed similar things, particularly in the NKVD uh, party meeting minutes that I looked at a lot of concern with enemies, but I wasn't sure how realistic that was because the NKVD is meant to look for enemies. And I know that in the reports coming from the OBCOM and the OBISPOLCOM, a Akulov from the Central Committee had actually sent out a form letter that demanded reports on, for example, anti-government statements, anti-constitutional statements, the worming in of enemies into different party organizations. And I found, at least in Kirov, a lot of the incidents they cited were like the same six repeated over and over again. So I'm not able to tell, at least from my documentation, how much of this was real and how much of this was simply because the government asked them to look for it, how widespread these anti-Soviet tendencies really were. Could you tell from your documentation, or did it simply have the effect of scaring Stalin and the other leaders?
1: Um, Yes, it is our work as a historian to critically analyze uh, the sources, and um, actually Stalin was also critical sometimes. He even articulated that he knows that OGPU sometimes provide very dark picture and he understood it is their work, Um, but he wanted information from other sources to create more or less objective picture uh, of the conditions of society and we uh, are very critical. How strong were these anti-Soviet attitudes in the society? We can discuss very long, uh, very lengthy this uh, topic, but what is important in our context is how Stalin perceived this information. And I argue in my book that... These The results of the discussion, these comments, these warnings about numerous enemies disappointed Stalin and influenced triggered his unexpected shift from moderating policies of the mid-1930s to the mass repressions of the Great Terror in 1937.
0: I when, came to the same conclusion.
1: Yes, good. So when the discussion campaign exposed enemies, enemies in uh, semicolon, inspired they were inspired by the new freedoms. You know, people articulated their views inspired by new freedoms. Plus, discussion exposed the obstruction of officials who were frightened by the coming contested elections, who worried about their positions in power, and very often sabotaged the discussion of the Constitution and liberties themselves. So, and here, when Stalin and the government received this information, obstruction I mean, the idea of the harmonious society, advent of socialism. This abstraction showed its discord with reality represented in their eyes, in the comments. What was result? The most daring part of the constitutional reform, contested elections, was castrated, and the constitution became a shock. So this information that Stalin received in the reports of our discussion in the populace, uh, in the popular comments was supported by the results of the census that took, uh, took place in January 1937. Census showed that uh, society is not so successful on its way to socialism, on its way to harmony, as it was expected and even announced in the newspapers. For example, a lot of population was still illiterate. 57% of the population were believers. They kept religious um, worldview. And in addition, they um, the government saw huge losses in the population. As a result, the result, uh, the uh, statistics of the census were dismissed, classified, and the organizers' officials were repressed so these results of the census were cancelled because the statistics didn't correspond to the expectations. It is strong argument supporting that <clears throat> Stalin re-evaluated conditions in society sometime in winter thirty-six-thirty-seven. 37 War And disillusionment with the progress in society caused Stalin to expand the purges previously directed against party and uh, Soviet officials, against oppositionists. Now these uh, repressions expanded to the masses against believers, former kulaks, and other unreliable population groups.
0: Well, I know when I did my study that they had a lot of trouble getting information from local and regional officials from which they could make this sort of decision. I know Akulov writes a very angry letter to the OBCOM bosses in August, I do believe, because they're not getting any information about the discussion. They're not getting the collections they need. He actually writes a very angry letter to um, Bobkov, who is head of the Ob Ispolkom, the uh, executive committee in the Kirov region, and claims that he's basically cooking the books, creating falsified statistics, or not doing his job and collecting statistics. Bobkov, of course, says that that's not what's going on. It's because that the local officials are taking forever and that they have to get all the information from them. But it was seems like in the Stalinist system in general, it's very hard to get material from the local officials and regional officials to Moscow for Moscow to make informed decisions. And certainly that seems to be a big problem. Absolutely. Actually, poor
1: reporting was a part of general Mao administration in Stalinism. And uh, there are a lot of uh, reasons and circumstances, Uh, actually wonderful studies by Arch and also Wendy Goldman, about uh, these difficult relations we can say tensions between uh, moscow and uh, local authorities so locals was often not able to implement contradicting orders from moscow and sometimes they ignored them or implemented them poorly or only formally or as you said falsified information imagine half liter. Chair of Kolkhoz in the middle of hunger in summer 1936, and he faces massive flight from Kolkhoz. He is busy with harvest, but he is required to organize mass meetings, organize discussions of the Constitution, and submit regular detailed reports.
0: My experience is that's not what they did at all. Uh, when yeah. I looked at the stuff in Kirov, what they did is when it was released in June, they had about a three-week period where they had different meetings. And by meetings, it would often be some guy reading the text of the Constitution, asking if everyone stood it, understood it, and moving on. As I could see from June and into July – the discussions taper off or disappear completely. August, you don't have much in discussion. In September, they pick up again in preparation for the Congresses of Soviets. Mm -hmm. But it's very sporadic, and a lot of times what counts as a discussion is literally somebody who is semi-literate, reading the text out loud, asking if there's any questions, asking if there's any comments and um, maybe writing some of them down not really explaining what the text means, not really doing any sort of in-depth discussion, particularly in the countryside when I did look at different enterprises in the For example, Slobodskoy, which is a small town outside of Kirov, has a big fur factory. There they did actually have discussion circles they met more regularly, but it's also because the party organization was better developed, they could lean on these people. They didn't have to send people out to try and get them to read or interact with the peasants. They already had discussion circles for other things that they could just use to discuss the constitution. So there's a big difference between city and country discussion that I found. Uh Absolutely. And a big difference in how thorough they were. A lot of stuff in the countryside unfortunately was not particularly well discussed.
1: Yeah, and the officials very often were illiterate or yeah, very poorly educated. And on top of that, one of the goals of the election reform, a part of the constitution, was to enhance the effectiveness of administration, to revitalize officials and outvote corrupt and sluggish bureaucrats. And Stalin, by this election reform, tried to use controlled democracy to fight corruption and party boyars clans. And office holders understood these intentions very well. Freedoms of the Constitution, like contested elections, undermined their positions of uh, power, especially of those corrupt, and as a result, they sabotaged the constitutional campaign and the new freedoms. So it was very understandable, their position on the discussion.
0: What I saw in Kirov was not so much sabotage as it was gross incompetence. I feel very bad for these poor RICOM chairmen. You know, they're semi-literate. They have maybe an elementary school education. And they have some of these poor guys have, you know, like... 15 meetings a month that they go to. They're supposed to be managing the constitutional discussion, different party campaigns, different economic campaigns. They simply can't do it. But yes, a lot of people did get fired in the Kirov region, particularly from local rural Soviets uh, as part of the constitutional discussion and the election campaign. So it did at least work in 1936 in the Kirov region. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so in 1936 they were dismissed but in 1937, they were arrested. Yeah, different level. But when you speak about uh, how these uh, these meetings were organized, we know that very often uh, in the factories people were just locked in the conference halls uh, after the working hours, and for two, three, four, five hours they were forced. To discuss the Constitution. One uh, case we know uh, when people came to watch the cinema, and instead of showing the cinema to them, they were uh, invited to discuss the Constitution, and they shouted so we had paid our rules for this um, uh, movie, not for discussing the Constitution, but ordinary people Actually, uh, uh, they forced them to discuss. After that, they showed the movie, which ended about 1 o'clock in the morning. And finally, Ojipur people arrested the most active protesters at this event. Yes, it was uh, not always just voluntary uh, participation.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the suggestions that were made voluntarily or as a prelude to the movie you wanted to watch. So you know, as of November 15, 19- 1936, they had collected about 43,000 suggestions across the USSR. Um, And of the 146 articles of the Constitution, only nine really received more than a 1,000 individual suggestions. And just for our readers to know what they are, uh, it's Article 8 pertaining to land usage, Article 109 concerning the election of people's courts, Article 119, related to the rights to rest. Article 120, on material security and pensions. Article 121, on election. Article 127, concerning habeas corpus. Uh, Article 132, on military service. And Article 135, about voting rights. And Article 142, pertaining to deputies' responsibilities to the constituents. So again, as you were talking about, trying to get rid of incompetent local officials. I noticed that you only briefly discussed military service and social welfare benefits, and you didn't really address land usage or education at all. You tend to focus on electoral rights and judicial reform in your work. Um, Why did you prioritize these reforms, and what does this add to our understanding of Stalinism? Um,
1: I actually discussed uh, the comments on the chapters in the Constitution that characterize Political culture. It is the topic of my book and that's why I was most interested in those chapters that gives us good uh, idea of uh, the popular attitude to the democratic principles, for example. And uh, universal suffrage and enfranchisement of former enemies give people a reason to express their attitude to democratic principles. It is my major topic. However, during this discussion, they very often articulated their high level of intolerance and even social hatred. Many wanted freedom of associations, press, parties, voting rights for themselves, but not for dissenters, or for individual farmers not for priests and it characterized the soviet popular vision of democracy
0: so why did they feel this way had they internalized soviet propaganda against these people or did they have their own more personal or economic reasons Uh, actually as
1: always the reasons were uh, various Economic reasons, for example, one of the motives of the protests against enfranchisement of the former kulaks came from the, these protests came from the local activists who de-kulakized the rich or wealthy peasants in the campaign of 1930 during collectivization. Now they lived in the, these activists lived in the homes of the kulaks. They used their horses, uh, maybe some personal property. And now when kulaks returned from the exile after five year terms, they claimed their properties and most important homes. So these activists articulated their, uh, these activists who were the beneficiaries of their kulakization, they protested against uh, enfranchisement and returning the rights to the former kulaks. Very interesting why people uh, were so negatively oriented towards priests. I uh, believe that anti-religious, not anti-clerical attitudes were the most uh, well uh, pronounced in the discussion. And uh, it is uh, probably very old attitudes, um, uh, deeply rooted attitudes, Coming from the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, socialist propaganda um, depicting priests as the um, parasites, as enemies of the uh, community, and not belonging to the modernity, to the uh, modern, beautiful socialist. World. So these anti clerical uh, comments were very, very numerous. Uh,
0: then yeah, I too noticed that the, the um, priests tended to be the object of concern far more than the kulaks, which I found yes. very surprising. Very surprising. Um, I also noticed that people were very much against habeas corpus rights to have an arrest warrant before you were arrested. And that also surprised me. Did you find similar attitudes towards habeas corpus rights? Uh, I actually
1: um, don't know what you exactly mean under this habeas corpus uh, notion, but what I saw in the sources, people protested. Against the new the innovation of the constitution, which required the sanction yes. or warrant of procuratura mm-hmm. uh, before uh, for arrest, and the most obvious reason for these protests was that villagers, peasants who lived in distant villages and places, didn't have militia or police uh, representative in their village and they asked very often uh, so if you have no right to arrest the hooligan or criminal on the place of the action then uh, they will run away or whatever they couldn't um, understand this period that after arrest, actual arrest, uh, the warrant or sanction of procuratura should be obtained. So it is misunderstanding of the legal procedure. And what I do, what conclusions I make in this uh, analysis of these exactly protests is that legal culture was not very well settled in the countryside so actually we can see uh, good uh, signs of the um, uh, proclivity to defend to defend the rights so people accepted and discussed, the uh, innovations about courts and so on and so on. But it was just misunderstanding of the procedure, judicial procedure behind this requirement of the procura- procurator assumptions.
0: I also found that it had a lot to do with how the Soviet state prioritized crime. They tended to focus on crime that negatively affected state property and state holdings and focused on that over things like hooliganism, drunkenness, physical assaults. Because when I looked at crime statistics in the Kirov region, crimes against personal property and person, um, you know, the person's individual self were deprioritized and very rarely saw arrest. So I kind of came to the conclusion, too, that people were sort of protesting the state not protecting their personal property and their personal interests and prioritizing its property over their well-being.
1: Yeah, so um, it is actually a good question about um, individual rights and uh, affiliation with a state. So what we see in the comments, as I see in the comments, a strong statism uh, and uh, proclivity to defend and uh, uh, support the state interests, okay? And uh, it is um, actually uh, why they, uh, people focused on the defense of state property, it was the echo of the state introduced in 1930 uh, law introduced in 1932 about the theft of uh, the state property very cruel law actually it was revised uh, it seems to me one or two years later but it still resonated in uh, popular mind so it could be an echo of that uh, cruel law uh, to defend state property and personal property was actually uh, discriminated during collectivization when peasants, kulaks, were um, stripped of any personal possessions, like pillows, like mirrors, and uh, yeah, small... Teacups. Yeah, teacups, spoons, and so on and so shawls. on. Shaws. Yeah, so it was not... Uh, people understood that personal property of this is not priority uh, for the state you know however the articles in the constitution uh, also
0: um, um they do guarantee the sanctity of yes. your house and of a small, small holding. You're allowed yeah. your garden plot and you're allowed one cow and a certain number of smaller livestock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, they go with more of the Artel form as opposed to the very strict, weird commune thing where everything was collective property, even clothing, towels, teacups, mm-hmm. chickens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what I see that comments uh, supporting individual rights democratic, civil, moderate, conciliatory, tolerant values and appreciating uh, property rights, for example, existed in the popular narratives. They uh, evidence that even in the Stalinist repressed society there existed a liberal political subculture with democratic elements. However, These requests for civil rights and support for the innovation of the constitution were contrasted with mass disapproval of the new liberties, especially religious, as we noted, demands for continuing segregation of the former people and strengthening of punishments. So the constitutional expansion of the franchise met articulate opposition. The grassroots... Open accept often accepted state intervention at the expense of individual rights, prioritizing state interests, praising the leader, advocating militarization, a total regimentation of life, and even surveillance of private correspondence. So aggression against sanctioned minorities, the priests, kulaks, and alcohol horse farmers can be read as an indication of an authoritarian-type political culture present in society. So what I see in the political culture, uh, in the mass political culture, the coexistence of liberal subculture with mass expressions of illiberal and traditional values reflected altogether the diversity of the political culture under Stalin's dictatorship.
0: So what do you think the legacy of the Constitution is? Most Western scholars are very dismissive of it because it's followed up immediately by repression. And as we talked about, both of us seem to think that the reports about class enemies getting power after getting their new rights contributes to this repression. But on the other hand, I've seen reports coming, for example, from 1937 – where a local rural Soviet chairmen are assessing taxes and doing things like breaking into someone's house and stealing all the flax from their bedding to meet the flax quota. Well, that guy actually got sanctioned for violating their constitutional rights by the opcom because it's illegal to break into someone else's house. It's actually constitutionally protected. So there's this sort of weird mixture of them sometimes obeying or enforcing constitutional rights while at the same time arresting and murdering large swaths of the population. So how do you make sense of that?
1: Yeah, actually, if we speak about the legacy or lessons of the constitution, I consider it on a more general level. And I reached uh, two major conclusions in the book. One is in the field of mass political culture And the second is about our new understanding of the Stalin's politics in relation to the moderation politics and his shift to the Great Terror. So if you uh, ask about the lessons of the Constitution for society, so uh, we can say that uh, one lesson was that many embraced the necessary Soviet skills of survival, mimicry and obedience, for instance, when they parroted officialies at meetings. Uh, But on the other, the people learned a new vocabulary of democracy. Now they could problematize areas that until then had not been considered. Another lesson learned by people in the Constitution that turned to be a sham was of mistrust. I actually have a chapter devoted to this attitude. It was another side of the mobilizations with cycles of enthusiasm and disillusionment. The discrepancy between the law and practice led to a moment of truth for many on their way to a critical assessment of the regime. But the main outcome of this change was the distrust and skepticism that its sham nature produced in citizens, and in the long term, this contributed to the growth of cynicism in society, which finally uh, led to the uh, finally eroded the foundation of the political system. So it is my uh, vision of the uh, political. Culture and long term consequences, legacy of the constitution. But I would like to also um, speak briefly about the politics. Um, The uh, conclusion that I came to the uh, conclusion that I came in the book is the answer to the question why did Discourse about friendly classes and and the February March Plenum in on 1937 opened a new round of attacks with a shift from targeting the party elite, uh, Party state elite, and oppositionists towards the general population, so-called anti-Soviet elements. So besides Stalin protracted conflict with regional party state clans and the inflammatory role of new NKVD head Nikolai Jov, we can see here also international tactic, but his conceptualization of popular commentaries on the Constitution and the results of the 1937 census, I believe provide the missing piece in the puzzle why relative moderation ended and mass repressions began. So results of the, constitute, of the di- discussion, especially anti-Soviet comments and warnings about enemies were internalized by Stalin, and he articulated it at the 8th Congress in December 1936, adopting the Constitution, together with the disappointing statistics of the census of in 1937 so this became this re-evaluation became a trigger in changing the policy so this is two major conclusions in my book in relation to the political culture and in relation to the policies government policies
0: well, thank you for discussing your really interesting book with us, Olga. I think we've taken up a fair amount of your time. Just one last cl- question for you. What new project are you working on now? Are you continuing your research on mass political culture, or have you decided to go in a different direction?
1: Uh, I actually uh, had written a, an article debating this last uh, question about moderation period and turn to oppression. So it is to mass repression, and uh, so I developed this study. I hope it, it will come next year. This article, and I also look forward to the studying surveillance in the Soviet society, and maybe uh, being, it will be my next big project: surveillance. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was very very interesting to discuss uh, our. Uh, topic uh, about constitution with you, with the expert who knows very well the background, events and consequences of the constitution. So it was great pleasure, Samantha. I appreciate it.
0: Likewise, it was nice talking to you. Thank you for being on our podcast.